Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. And now let the words that I say and the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. A couple of weeks ago, Hugh Hefner died, and uh, he was the founder and sustainer of the Playboy franchise. And so when he died, the ensuing conversation or debate about his legacy was a reminder that as a society, we aren't in total agreement about what sexual freedom really is. Because on one hand, you had people saying Hugh Hefner was a champion of sexual freedom. He helped us throw off the shackles of 1950s Victorian morality, right? On the other side, you had people saying Hugh Hefner was not a champion of sexual freedom at all, especially for women, because he was one of the main contributors to the further objectification of women in society, which did anything but free them. Um, and so our world agrees on the importance of sexual liberation. We just haven't quite come to a consensus on what that liberation would actually look like. And as Christians, we contribute to it, I think, in part by rarely talking about it, so that we're in a situation where many of us, maybe this morning, would not even be sure how to start answering the question if somebody asked us, are you experiencing sexual freedom in your life? Or is sexual liberation even a good goal for a Christian? Right? It's all confusing, or it can be for us. Uh, Today's sermon is the latest installment in our Transforming the World series. Um, We've been looking, every few months we come back to this series for one week and look at an issue that's pressing in our day. So back in August, I preached on marriage and sex, and we looked at same-sex activity and filtered it through the grid of what the Bible says about marriage and sex. And after that sermon, there, was, uh, there were many of you requested that we would teach more about sex uh, in the future. And so we decided to use this sermon today to do that, and specifically today to look at what the Bible says about sex in relation to the concept of freedom. Um, So that's what we're going to be doing today, but it's not just a theoretical look at sexual freedom, right? Because this is an issue that is a live issue for each of us in this room um, on a weekly basis. It's one of the most powerful forces in the world we live in, and just a few ways of illustrating that would be one, if I were to put an image up on the screen, and never would, but if I were to put an image up on the screen Neurons will be firing all over this room, one way or the other, for good or for bad, instantly. Um, It's powerful because many of us would say that you think about it every single day. It's powerful because it's the source of a lot of our feelings of guilt and shame. Um, So, because it's so powerful, it has the ability for our enemy to use it to do a great deal of harm if... We misuse sex. But because sex is so powerful, it also has the ability to bring a great deal of glory to God if we use it appropriately. Um, So I'm aware that people are coming here this morning from different places. I guess there's a chance that somebody's here this morning because you saw the sign out front all week that said sex and freedom and you were like, hey, I've always wanted to know what God says about sex and I want to live my life the way that he wants me to live my life. And so... I hope this church can tell me what God says about sex so I can carry it out. Um, if that's you, God bless you. Um, 
here's just a few bullet points just to run through briefly. I'm not running through these briefly because I think it's uh, trivial or because I think that these aren't important things we're about to walk through. It's just not how we're going to spend most of our time today. But just to lay some groundwork at the beginning of what the Bible says about sex, uh, a few points. God created sexuality and sex as good gifts, part of his perfect creation. Marriage involves a sexual union, according to Scripture. Procreation is one reason Scripture gives for sex. God wants men and women to have children. Pleasure and intimacy are another reason Scripture gives for sex. When Jesus was asked about sex and marriage, he treated Genesis as authoritative, even though it's in the Old Testament, when he was asked about it. Pornography is off-limits, because Jesus said lust is adultery. Same-sex sexual relationships are off-limits. We talked about that in August. Fornication, that's sex with somebody you're not married to. And adultery, that's sex with somebody who's married to somebody else. Those are off-limits. And it's all a serious issue because some persistent patterns of behavior, including sexual immorality, put a person outside of God's kingdom, according to 1 Corinthians 6. Still, in that same chapter, Paul can say there have always been homosexual Christians. Marriage and sex are temporary. And to sum it all up, the marriage relationship, which includes sex, is meant to be an illustration of Christ's relationship with the church. So once again, we didn't just move through that fast because... I'm dismissing it because it's trivial. If you have questions about those things, text them in and we can talk about them at the end. But here's why we're not camping out there today. It's because for the majority of us, I think, coming here this morning, we're not confused about what the Bible says about sex. Even if you weren't raised in the church, you probably, as I was working through that list, were like, yeah, that's exactly what I thought Christians thought about sex, right? For many of us, our questions aren't questions of knowledge, that we have a lack of knowledge about what God says about sex, our questions are maybe one step removed, one step back from that. Our questions are more questions like these. If I give my sexual decision-making up to God, is that going to result in my missing out? Our questions are like this one. How do I know if this right here, what the Bible says, is really what God says about sex? Our questions are questions like these. Why does God arbitrarily say some sexual expressions are wrong and others are right? Or, what gives God the right to have the final word on my sex life? Or finally, how could this be wrong if it seems so right? I think those are more of the questions that many of us wrestle with on a regular basis about this. And so, not dismissing the other questions, these are the ones that I'd like us to camp out on today. Uh, I'd like to see what God's Word has to say about it. So, we're going to actually start in a passage today that's not about sex per se, but I think as we read Genesis 3, and if you turn there now, as we read Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7, we'll see that it has profound implications for our discussion this morning. Just the third chapter of the Bible, right toward the beginning there. Um, so uh, let's jump right in, and if you'd follow along as I read verses 1 through 7 of Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest 
you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Okay, a lot happened there. So let's zoom out and just nail down the order of events. It started with a question from the serpent to Eve, and then Eve responded. And then the serpent straight up denied God's word. And then Eve considered what the serpent had to say. And then she ate, and then she gave some to her husband. So um, question, response, denial, consideration, eating, sharing, all in the course of seven verses. And over the course of that seven verses, we went from perfect bliss and perfect unity with God, walking with him in the cool of the day, to all the problems and issues that we have today. So let's briefly walk through it and see how it happened. First, the question. Let's look at the question again. It's in verse 1. He said, that's the serpent, said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So the more you analyze this question, the more incredibly crafty you realize that it is. There's so many layers to how crafty it is. First of all, it's crafty because it's a question. Right? He doesn't start with an outright denial of God's word. He asks a question with just the right amount of skepticism about God's command that was issued back in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. It's just the right amount of skepticism that um, it doesn't seem sinister. Right? It's like, Hey, can you believe, can you believe that God, that he'd issue such an outrageous command? I can't, I can't believe it. And it's an extremely flattering question. And we'll get to that in a minute, why it was so flattering. But at first I want us to think about this. What was Satan trying to draw out of Eve with that question? What kind of thoughts, imaginings was he trying to get her to think when he asked that question? I think as the narrative plays out in those seven verses we can kind of discern what Satan was trying to do with that first question. There's several layers. Let's look at four of them right now. He's trying to get her to ask this. Is God really good? Like, does he really know what's best for us? Um, does he want what's best for us? No, serpent. He didn't, he didn't outlaw every tree in the garden. But actually, now that you mention it, it wouldn't be that out of character for him to do that. He kind of seems like, now that I think about it, he's like a party pooper. He just doesn't want us to have happiness. Another thought, the serpent is maybe encouraging an Eve. God's prohibitions, they're just arbitrary. Why does he make one thing off limits and not another, right? Um, Seems so random. Another. Am I really satisfied with what God has permitted Like, I've been happy here in Eden, but maybe I shouldn't have been. Maybe I'm too easily satisfied, right? Because now that you're talking to me, serpent, I'm realizing that maybe God's just kind of giving me the scraps of what could be available to me if he offered me more of the fullness of the human experience. And now, as I'm thinking about it with you, serpent, I'm starting to wonder, is this God just on a power trip, honestly? 
like you might be right. He seems kind of harsh the more I think about him. And maybe he's just sitting there taking this cruel pleasure and saying, this is off limits, and then watching us obey. So when we immerse ourselves in this text, um, I think we can see those wheels just starting to turn in Eve's mind as a result of this question. But prior to these four imaginings that we just talked about, there's something that the serpent had to do first. There's a prior step that had to happen before she could even think any of these thoughts. And maybe some of you realize it as we're reading the text. It's this first implied suggestion. It's this. God's instructions are open to human modification. In other words, the truth of God's word is up for discussion. Right? It's a legitimate topic for us to analyze. And that's why I said earlier that it's such a flattering question. Because it invites Eve to view herself as sitting up high looking down on God's commands and discerning for herself as the ultimate judge which ones are good and which ones aren't, right? What a question. And we know that it succeeds because uh, Eve responds not the way we might expect her to respond based on how Genesis 1 and 2 went. Not the way she maybe should have responded, not the way Adam should have responded in this moment, which would be, get out of here right now. We never want to see you again. We are living in perfect harmony with God and obedience to his commands, and that's the way it's going to be, right? But instead, Adam stands there like a coward, doing nothing, even though he was the one who originally received this command back in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, before Eve was there. And Eve decides it's worthwhile to engage in an analysis of God's instructions. So let's look at her response again. It's in verses 2 and 3. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So we can tell that already the serpent has succeeded in getting God's rule to get under Eve's skin just a little bit. And here's how we know. Because he gets her to do her own little bit of exaggerating now. Do you notice that? In verse 3, she says, we're not even supposed to touch it. But if you look back at chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, that's not part of God's command. He didn't say anything about that. So now the serpent knows that he's in. He can tell that he's gotten under her skin a little bit. He's got her thinking some things and questioning about God. And so that's when the serpent gets bold enough to do what he never would have done in the first place. And that's what he does in verse 4 in directly contradicting God's command. He says, you will not surely die. So let's return to our exercise here for a moment. This could be a good place to do it. We'll try to identify what ideas now the serpent is trying to draw out of Eve. I think there's four more at least that we could see. What's he inviting her to think? Well, He's inviting her to think, God isn't going to judge us. You know, the more I think about him, he's just a big softy, you know. He loves us so much. He's full of love. He is love. Um, These are just empty threats he's making. He would never carry out a death sentence on us. He's inviting Eve to think, Eve hears, be like God. Well, I want to be like God, right? Yeah, what is it about God that, why does he always get to define what's good and what's evil, you know? I'd like a chance to evaluate what's good and what's evil for myself sometime. 
What else is he encouraging Eve to think? Well, I heard all this secondhand in the first place, right? I wasn't there when God gave this command to Adam back in chapter 2. How do I even know Adam was right? How do I know he told me the right thing? Maybe he misrepresented what God said, or maybe he even intentionally led me astray, right? All of this makes me think, as I'm Eve, I I just really need to take a look for myself at this fruit situation and see if it's good or not, right? Because what better way to sort through the competing voices? We got the serpent saying this, we got God saying this. How do you know? I, I should take a look for myself, right? I'll be the judge of what's good and what's evil. So she takes a look. When she looks, all the indications are it's good for the food, delightful for the eyes, desirable for wisdom. So she eats and she shares with Adam, who, by the way, is not deceived. He knows exactly what he's doing because he heard God's command and he knows he's going willfully and rebelliously against God's command. As a result of their eating, they did gain a deeper knowledge of good and evil, in a sense. Before, they only knew sin in theory. They knew sin based on what God had told them. But now they knew sin from the inside. It's like the cancer doctor who then gets cancer. Before getting cancer, the cancer doctor knew about cancer extensively from the books that she had read. But after getting cancer... She knows it in a different way. She now knows it from the inside in a way that she didn't know it before. That's Adam and Eve. Uh, The new knowledge that they gained about good and evil was a knowledge from the inside, which of course is a knowledge of good and evil that God does not have. So it doesn't make them like God in the way that they hoped it would. It made them die. By God's grace, he didn't strike them dead immediately. But they do experience a spiritual death by being cast out of his presence, and they do eventually undergo physical death, which never needed to be part of human existence if it wasn't for this sin. So, as we're able to step back and look at this passage, it's easy for us to see how foolish to think that you could become like God by outwitting God, or you could become like God by defying God, right? It seems so foolish to us, but that's exactly what they attempted. Okay, so we've walked through the first seven verses here in Genesis chapter 3. We haven't even talked about sex yet, okay? But hopefully, I think it's probably becoming clear how relevant this passage is to the sex questions that we laid out at the beginning of our time together today. To restrict ourselves to the sexual expressions that God has restricted us to can be really difficult. And one of the reasons it can be really difficult is because If we're honest, we have a really hard time sometimes really believing deep down that God is good, right? I mean, we hear him say that he's good. We hear him say that the line in the sand that he's drawn about what's restricted and what's not, we hear him say that that line is good. But can that really be true when we're looking at what's on the other side of the line and it looks so appealing and it looks so natural? So we go where Eve went. We say, I'm going to take a look at that fruit for myself. Maybe we turn it over in our hands a few times and take a close look. And we say, you know what? If God wants to keep me from this or keep my friend from this, I'm not sure that God can really be good. Or maybe that's not the struggle for you. Maybe you're not somebody who wrestles with God's goodness. Maybe you've been a Christian for a while and God's goodness is like the first rock you put in the jar. It's not moving. You're just... 
never going to give up on the belief that God is good. So where you go is that you hear God's word and you see that sometimes it includes restrictions, prohibitions um, of certain sexual activity. And you read that and you go here. You're like, well, I know God's good. I know this command doesn't seem good to me. So maybe this isn't really what God commanded, right? So you ask the question the serpent asked. Did God really say, fill in the blank, right? Did God really say, no sex till our wedding night? I mean, we're engaged. What's the difference? God will understand, right? Or like Eve, you make the excuse, well, I'm hearing this secondhand. Like, how do I know that these authors really were hearing from God when they wrote this? How do I know the translators were getting it right when they were translating it? I mean, how do I know I haven't misunderstood or misinterpreted this? I even heard a preacher or a speaker once who was a Christian say that actually the Bible says that it's okay to live with your boyfriend or girlfriend before you're married. So who am I to be the judge of all this? I haven't taken Greek and Hebrew, right? So you just go here. Here's what I know. I know God is good. I know that I know what's good. And this command doesn't look good to me. So this can't really be from God. Or maybe your hang up is that you're one of the rational people who wants to know the reason for a command before you agree to obey it. So when you read the sexual restrictions in the Bible, you're like, this is so arbitrary. Why can person A and person B be in love and express that love sexually, while person C and person D are also in love, but they can't express that love sexually? It's so arbitrary. Why, what's up with God? Why does he just pick certain pairings of people or certain sex acts and put those off limits? And so you empathize with Eve whose head seems to be spinning as she realizes, wait, I'm not sure why God put one tree off limits. Do you see how she worded that in verse 3? It was always called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's how God gave the command. She's like, yeah, that tree in the middle of the garden. As if to say, I'm not sure. Yeah, it just seems so random. Actually, now that you mention it, serpent, there's just one tree in the middle of the garden that I'm not supposed to eat from. So the relevance of this passage to our sexual questions and decision-making is inexhaustible. But there's one more that I want to just dig into, one more way, one more type of person who might be here this morning, one more struggle, and it's this. Maybe, Maybe God has, or maybe the serpent, our enemy, has succeeded in getting under your skin with God's rules, but you don't even realize it. And you don't realize it because you're one of the religious folks who is always talking about sexual purity and the importance of it. You um, take a lot of pride in your stand for truth when it comes to God's commands with regards to sex. But what the serpent has gotten you to do, and what he got Eve to do, is subtle. He's gotten you to add restrictions to what God actually restricted. Maybe it makes you feel more holy. Maybe there's another motivation for it. But... Maybe you don't realize that you're following in the footsteps of Eve when she added on to God's command by saying, we're not even allowed to touch it, right? What happens when we go there and when we do that, when we mess with God's word like that? Well, Eve takes the apple, or I mean, it's not an apple necessarily, it's a fruit. She takes the fruit and she 
uh, doesn't die. She breaks her restriction that she made and doesn't die. So she's like, oh yeah, this, is, this will be fine, right? And we do the same thing with our kids and with the younger generation sometimes, I think. Here's what I mean. You can't date until you're 18. As a matter of fact, you can't even talk to any boys until you're 18, right? Then what happens? She talks to a boy when she's 14, and she doesn't drop dead like you said she would. Actually, she like, has a very pleasant conversation, and it's very enjoyable and seems very wholesome, right? And so then she starts to think, wait a minute. Do my parents really know what's right for me? Does my church really even know what's good and what's evil? I need to think about maybe the other voices in the culture that are talking to me about sex know better than my parents and my church about what's good and what's not good, right? And so the serpent has used you as an avenue to convince this young person to throw the baby of God's commands out with the bathwater of your added rules And all because you've been parenting with the number one goal to get your kid to their wedding day or at least to college as a virgin instead of with the number one goal of getting your kid to heaven's gates as a passionate follower of Jesus with a real vibrant relationship with him that's been cultivated over years of fighting temptation with the Holy Spirit's help and receiving Jesus' grace when they fail. So I wonder if you've seen in yourself any of these Eve-like attitudes toward God and sex that we just looked at. There are others we could talk about. There's sometimes we feel like, I know this is wrong, but God's not going to follow through on his promise to judge. He's just a softy. We said the, spirit, the serpent was telling Eve that lie. We tell ourselves the lie, well, who's better to, to judge what's best for my body than me, right? Just like Eve said, hand me that fruit, I'll judge for myself if it's good. The serpent hasn't changed his strategy all that much from the garden till now, right? He hasn't needed to. He's still so good at just planting just the right question in our minds that will eventually grow into all sorts of rebellions against God and against God's limits that he set for our lives, including our sex lives. For the final portion of our time, I want to address this. This would be valid if you're thinking this right now. Hey, this was false advertising today. You said it was about sex and freedom. The whole first half of the service had all these verses about freedom. You haven't talked, I haven't heard anything about freedom at all. Um, in fact, what kind of freedom could it be if you're asking me to live a life in which I'm so restricted, including in my sex life? Right? It's a good question. I think there's an answer to it. But maybe the best way to get at the answer is to start with an illustration. So a few pictures I want to put up here. Um, question. When is a boat most free? Is a boat most free when it's restricted to the water or when it's encouraged to give land a try? When is a Jeep most free? Is a Jeep most free when it's restricted to land or when it's encouraged, hey, give the pond a try? Or a train? When is a train most free? Is it most free when it's restricted to the tracks? Or when it's encouraged to give the meadow or the forest a try? Live a little.
in all these ways, the restrictions are actually what gives freedom to these vehicles to do what they were made to do, to be who they were meant to be, right? They get more freedom, not less, as a result of these restrictions. Now, somebody here is like, no, I get it. I get what you're trying to do here. This train had to stop when it got in the grass because it couldn't go anymore. I get the point you're trying to make, but don't try to say that that's not freedom. It still is freedom coming off the tracks, right? And I want to acknowledge there's some truth in that. And what you're hitting on there that's true is that there are two types of freedom that we use interchangeably as if there's no difference. Sometimes we use the word freedom to talk about one. Sometimes we use the word freedom to talk about the other as if they're interchangeable, but they're actually two different types of freedom that are worth uh, spelling out, okay? First type of freedom is this. It's the freedom to choose right or wrong. The freedom to choose right or wrong. It's the freedom to make a decision for myself about what I'm going to do, whether it's right or whether it's wrong, okay? It's the sort of freedom that the train has when it goes off the tracks, the second type of freedom is the freedom to do what's right. That's the sort of freedom that the train has when it's on the tracks. It's the freedom to choose not to do what I want to do, but to choose to do what I ought to do. Okay? Now somebody's like, I don't need that kind of freedom if I have this freedom. Right? If I have the freedom to choose right or wrong, then I automatically by default have the freedom to do what's right. But no, you don't. Because think about before you were a Christian. You've had this experience. Maybe even since you've been a Christian, you've felt something like this. You really, really wanted to stop a certain behavior because you'd become convinced it was wrong, or at least wrong for you, and you couldn't stop. Anybody ever had that experience? You tried and tried and tried, and you just could not stop whatever you could do. You didn't have the power to do what was right. You had the power to choose right or wrong. You didn't have the power to do what was right. The serpent offered Adam and Eve this kind of freedom, the freedom to choose right or wrong. Actually, they already had it, but he persuaded them to avail themselves of it. Jesus, our Messiah, offers this kind of freedom, the freedom to do what's right. Um, now, here's the thing. Um, I'm one of many who had this experience with regards to pornography. I can't tell you how many different things I tried to stop looking at porn for years, right? Um, I tried punishing myself in different ways. I tried putting filters on my computer. I tried getting in community with other brothers who were going to keep me accountable, right? Tried so many different things and couldn't break free. I felt I was in chains that I literally could not do anything about. Um, and some of those things are good things, by the way. We have a group here called Finally Free, a men's group that is men working together to break free of sexual addiction. Really, really, really great. And we should be seeking that in community. But it's not enough on its own. It can't do the work on itself just sitting in a room with a group of guys. Um, Hugh Hefner would have told me, my problem is not what I'm looking at. My problem is the guilt that I'm feeling. Just forget feeling that guilt. You don't need to feel guilty about that, and then you'll be free. But I knew, even when I convinced myself that what I was doing was okay, I knew there was a freedom that I wasn't experiencing. I could feel it, that there, was a ch there were chains that I was in. When you can't stop an activity, you're a slave to that thing. And it was only for Jesus that could give me that true freedom 
in the end, to break those chains, um, to stop looking at porn. It was a freedom that only he offered, that nothing else that I found could offer. And some of you have had that same experience. So here's the question. Which is the greater freedom? Is the greater freedom the freedom to choose what's right or wrong or the freedom to do what's right? Because I get that Jesus offers this, but if this is the greater freedom, then I want this, right? A way of getting at this answer is by asking another question. Who's the most free being in the universe? Okay. For years, people in this camp would have held up somebody like Hugh Hefner as the most free you can possibly be, right? Sex with anyone you want, wherever you want, whenever you want, however you want, with no restrictions, no guilt. What could be more free than that? People in this camp who say that true freedom is the freedom to do right would say, well, who does right more than God? So God is the most free being in the universe, right? And as Hugh Hefner aged and then died, it became increasingly clear how pitiful his sort of freedom was as it diminished over the years. While God's freedom never wavered, but I think it's really important that we acknowledge that God himself, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, God himself doesn't have this kind of freedom. God himself doesn't have the freedom to choose right or wrong. Did you realize that? Here's what it says in Second Timothy 2. If we're faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. In other words, he can't go against his character. He doesn't have the freedom to choose evil. Yet he's the most free being in the universe. And more than that, when we're in heaven, in the new Jerusalem, forever with him in perfect harmony and fellowship with him, that here is the kind of freedom that we will have, the freedom to do what's right. And we will no longer have this freedom, the freedom to choose right or wrong. Evil will no longer be a choice we can make. We'll be unable to sin. There will be no tree of the knowledge of good and evil there. There will be a tree of life. And what's the alternative? You think about it this way, if you're, if you're skeptical right now, think about what's the alternative. The alternative is that we could choose evil in heaven, right? You don't think that after five billion years in heaven, if you had the ability to choose evil, that you would have chosen evil at some point? We all would, right? Um, but there is no tree of the knowledge of good and evil in heaven because we will be so conformed to God's image that we will be like him in his freedom, which is this sort of freedom, the freedom to do what's right, not the freedom to choose right or wrong. One of the so-called church fathers, St. Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, said it this way. He, uh, after he had overcome um, sexual addiction by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the fulfillment of grace, that's in heaven, man will have the power to sin taken away and receive the highest of all, the power not to be able to sin. That freedom right there is the greatest freedom that we will have ever experienced. But it won't be the freedom to choose right or wrong. It will be the freedom that God himself has, the freedom to do what's right. And incredibly, we can taste that freedom even right now by the power of God's Holy Spirit. So to wrap up everything that we've looked at today, specifically with regards to sex, our big idea is this. Seek the sexual liberation that God offers. Seek the sexual liberation that God offers. According to scripture, the greatest freedom that's available is God's freedom. 
And we can avail ourselves of that freedom increasingly as we increasingly allow Christ to set us free. And as we allow Christ to set us free, we'll realize that much of what he's setting us free from, many of those chains, we shackled onto ourselves at the advice of someone who was claiming to offer us this other sort of freedom. They offered us this free choice between right and wrong, and in free choice, after free choice, after free choice that we made, we put one more chain after one more chain after one more chain on ourselves that we could not break free from. So let's seek that freedom, the freedom that Jesus offers. Let's shift the kind of freedom that we yearn for, the kind of freedom that was purchased by Jesus' blood. And in a conversation like this, doesn't Jesus' blood just become so precious to you? The blood that can make the foulest clean. The blood that can wash over all of our sexual sin and brokenness, which, by the way, all of us have. Not a single one of us will get to our wedding day pure. Yet Jesus' blood is able to wash over all of it and wash it white as snow so that we can stand before him on the last day as his pure and spotless bride, despite all of our sin. Let's experience that now, here and now, increasingly as we seek after it, and even as we lay aside some of this freedom, this lesser freedom, to seek after the greater freedom. If we do that, if we live that way, it might just transform the world we're living in at least our little corner of it. Our world that's confused about what sexual freedom is or isn't. Our world that's reeling from scandal after scandal of powerful people exploiting others sexually. Maybe, maybe the sexual liberation that God offers is exactly the sexual liberation that our world needs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for sending your son Jesus to die, taking the punishment for our sin. But we thank you that his death wasn't just to take away our guilt or our punishment. We thank you that he died to take away the sin itself. To set us free, break the chains of our slavery to sin, including sexual sin. Thank you for the freedom and victory that so many of us have experienced through you. Help others to experience it, even starting this morning. And help us to come alongside each other and encourage each other as we seek it together. In Jesus' name, amen.